In our last episode, we took you through that horrible night of July 23rd, 1968. As we wrapped up that segment, Fred Ahmed Evans had surrendered to police and he told a black police officer in a squad car, this is just the beginning. Evans referred to what he believed would be a multi-city rebellion kicked off by the uprising in Cleveland. The problem was Evans and his group started the revolution a day early. In other cities, nationalists believed the war would start on July 24th, and the fact that Evans and his band had been put down decisively caused others to pause. Moreover, the concern was that the FBI had informants who had tipped off Cleveland police and that other informants in other cities might also be on to the plan to start a rebellion. In this episode, we'll follow Fred Ahmed Evans to the city jail and explore his confession and its meaning. We'll also look at the police investigation and discuss the two trials in 1969 that resulted in guilty verdicts and Evans receiving the death penalty. Most of what you will hear today comes from long suppressed FBI files and notes. I'm WKYC producer Chris Cantorgiani. And I'm Jim Robinall, author of Ballots and Bullets, Black Power Politics in Urban Guerrilla Warfare, in 1968 Cleveland. And we call this episode, Confessions, Evidence, and Trials. So when we left off, Ahmed Evans, Fred Ahmed Evans, had just encountered Pete Ventura, who was a bit of a John Wayne, rescuing people, running through, dodging fire. and It was a pretty amazing story. So they've now met each other. And uh, let's actually start by hearing a little bit more from Pete from what that exchange was like. Here's Pete Ventura. It, it was a bad night, and I, the, the citizens deserved to be protected. Well, you know what I mean? You know, over there. And there was not only policemen killed, there was, there was civilians killed. There was a civilian killed, too. Uh, right, the, with, in the yard with yeah, In the yards. Right. You know, he was killed, too. So, yeah. You know, so just, just a bad night. But, How uh, many black militants do you think were killed? I don't know how many were killed. I don't know. I, I tell you, I shot, I shot some. You know what I mean? But like I said, I never shot unless he shot at me. I never knew how many there were killed over there. But I know three of them. You know what I mean? That I seen. You know what I mean? And some that I, I shot at, you know what I mean? The, the, the shot at me, I never got a chance to go up, uh, you know, go up to them. And that, that night, at night, uh, 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 was on fire. Yeah, I know Alma Evans, you know. And so when someone said, hey, there's a, there's a guy that wants to surrender, tell, right. me, tell me what happened. Uh, well, a guy, a guy said, there's a, there's a black man in the back wants to give yourself up to a black policeman. I said, he'll give himself up to a white policeman. That's when I went back. You know what I mean? And that's when Ahmed Evans was against the building. He had the carbine laying in the front of him on there, and he made those remarks to me. You know, if my gun went in jams, white honks, he ought to kill more of you. That, that's exactly what, what he said. I don't forget that, you know what I mean? Another policeman come back in, you know what I mean? They made the arrest, you know what I mean? They arrested him. I never, I'd never seen him after that. So Pete turns Ahmed over to other police. Jim, what happened? You know, this is very dramatic. I mean, you can imagine the scene. The house is burning down across the street. Evans has just surrendered to police. Um, the way Pete Ventura tells it, he surrenders to him first, and then Pete turns him over. Others tell it differently. But be that as it may, when Evans um, went to trial a year later, the judge had to decide whether his confession, which we're going to hear about today, uh, could be used in evidence. So he held what uh, lawyers call a suppression hearing to suppress that confession. And the big question was whether or not Evans had asked for his attorney before he started talking. And, and we'll, we'll come to that. But the scene could not have been more dramatic. Evans is in a, is coming out of the... Um, this uh, the side of this house where he'd been hiding through most of the shootout. And he says he's surrounded by 10 officers. He also said that those 10 officers then began to attack him. By the way, he came out without a shirt on. He took his shirt off to, to so that they would know he wasn't armed. Mm-hmm. Um, and from his description of it, 
um, he, he had these, this group started to attack him, and he describes a really dramatic scene. And I just, I'll read a little bit. This is from evidence that he gave at this suppression hearing. So it's his testimony about this. Um, and some voice said to me to come out with my hands up, and I did. And I was placed alongside a wall and searched. And I was told to turn around. And at this time, I was attacked by several of the policemen that began to punch me. Now, it's important for us to note that the policemen denied that this happened. Okay. Um, and he said it was about 10 of them. He said, I mean, I had my hands spread eagle, as you well know the procedure of search. And when I turned around then, in fact, the very shortest one I could see, he means of the policeman, was the first one in, and he started swinging into my ribcage. It didn't hurt or nothing, you know, but they were attacking, and this black policeman, who happened to be nearby, said, now, hold on, we'll have none of that. He took me by, by the arm and started out towards Lakeview. So he was rescued, he said, by a black policeman and took him to that cruiser, the one who asked him, why did you do this? Right. Um, and so uh, he further goes on to describe what happened that night. Once he's in the car, one of the policemen uh, comes up to take him out of the car, and he hears, he says, all of the policemen saying, and I'm quoting here from his testimony, I will kill him. No, I will kill him. Let's have him out here and kill him and dump him in the lake is what they said. And then this officer with the shotgun says, I'll give you one more chance to tell me where the goddamn gun is before I blow your black brains out. Um, So he describes this scene where, again, he's rescued by the black officer and he's uh, put into another car where uh, shotguns are held to his head. And on the way downtown, he's being told by these officers that, he hopes that, uh, or that they hope that the people who are rioting at that point um, would shoot at them so that they, they could uh, kill him. And he, he was known to the police, many of the police at this time. He wasn't an unknown figure in Cleveland. Yeah, he absolutely was. And uh, what he describes is he says he's, he's driving, they're being driven down Superior Avenue downtown to, the, to headquarters. And he says the whole place is, his word is, on blazes. Everything's on fire. And people are, are uh, you know, rioting. He says there are thousands of people in the streets. Um, but there's this great hostility. Um, and he makes it to the jail. And there's another incredible scene that then develops. Oh, um, which was a chaos there, I'm yeah, sure, at the jail. Yeah, so you're, you're talking about it's like 1 in the morning. Um, all these officers had been killed and badly wounded. And um, rioting is breaking out. Uh, and he's brought down to be interviewed. And so who does he run into but his nemesis, Sergeant John Ungvery, the guy who had been the head of the subversives unit that we introduced earlier, who had, uh, who had been surveilling Evans, and they knew each other very well. So here they were in this room that's packed with people uh, confronting each other after this shootout. Uh, and so that we need to talk about that confrontation, but it's just kind of an incredible scene. Shakespearean again in this story, the yeah. characters entering right at the right moment. Yes. And so Carl Stokes sends a, um, the city prosecutor, a white uh, man whose name is Carnes, and Prosecutor Carnes, and he sends him to watch over to make sure that Evans is not beaten or, you know, um, that something bad doesn't happen to him. I mean, you're concerned about a situation like a Lee Harvey Oswald where this guy is somehow killed and then then what happens? So Stokes um, sends Carnes down to make sure that nothing bad happens, but they also want to find out what's going on. So it's one in the morning and there is, again, a whole group of people and one of the guys, uh, Detective Carl Roberts, is taking notes as Evans is speaking about what happened. Um, and the first thing that happens is Evans asks Ungvery to undo the handcuffs, which are biting into his flesh um, behind his back, very uncomfortable. He, again, he has no shirt on. He's got all these people confronting him, sunglasses. Um, and so they take off the uh, – Ungvery agrees to take off this. And at that point, um, he looks at Ungvery and he says, well, I'm not going to talk to anybody else, but I will talk to you, John talks you know directly by first name name. 
And what the uh, we can read some of this from the notes, but again, it's kind of incredible this confrontation in the middle of the night with these two adversaries going at it. And Ungvary um, says, you know, essentially, why were you doing this? Who were you shooting at? And he says, and this is a quote from the notes, I was shooting at policemen, and if my damn carbine hadn't jammed, I'd still be shooting. He further stated to Sergeant Ungvary, John, as well as I've known you, you've always treated me right. If you had been out there, I would have shot you too. Um, he stated that at the time his gun jammed, he had police in his sights as they passed by him that he could have gotten them too. So this is his refrain that his gun jammed. And this goes back to Pete Ventura yeah. saying, you're a veteran. Yeah. You know how to unjam a gun. You're That's not what happened. And yeah. by the way, the evidence, at least from the police perspective, was that when they recovered that gun, it was not jammed. There was no bullet in it that had jammed. Mm-hmm. Um, their view is that he was a coward, that he went to the attic, and that and sat it out. But he clearly kept repeating this theme of his gun uh, jammed. But he's also admitting he was shooting and killing cops in this. Yeah, and he was asked about all of this, and um, he's, he's asked where he got the money. And this is where he confesses that he got the money from Cleveland now to buy these rifles. And so the police know it right away. And that's why in the next days it leaks out to the newspapers that he had used Cleveland now money Uh, to buy the rifles. uh. So he tells them that that's that's what happened. But then he also, they ask him very directly. They say, why were you shooting at policemen? And he said, and this is a quote from the notes, I'm tired of being kicked around by by the white policemen. I hate all white police. For an example, if I were standing, and this is where it gets kind of bizarre. If I were standing on the corner drinking a bottle of wine and a white policeman came by in a car, I would continue drinking it with the bottle exposed. If a black policeman would come by, I would hide the bottle to show uh, the black policeman respect. And he says, and as long as there are black and white, there will always be trouble in that our our background and cultures are entirely different. Um, So... He's, he's really expressing this, this thought of revolution, but also that this was just something that was you know, going to happen. Um, Ungvary being Ungvary, the old communist fighter from you know, the 50s right. um, in the subversives unit, asked him about tie-ins with Ho Chi Minh and China and so forth. That was what was it, most— They're looking to build this communist con- connection. Yeah, and uh, he gets an answer from Ahmed that, you know, that, that they, they admire Ho Chi Minh. One of the guys in his group actually changed his name to Ho Chi Minh and yeah. that they got literature from him and um, that they knew who this Robert F. Williams is, the guy who wrote the book Negroes with Guns, then ends up in Vietnam and in China. I mean, they're, Famously. Yeah. yeah, there are pictures of him standing next to Mao. Right. Um, and but they knew him and they knew all that. It really has nothing to do with why this this shootout happened. It's more this hatred of the police and wanting to make a stand. Um, and he then describes that this was supposed to be the kickoff of a multi-city rebellion, and that um, he was, as he says, this is just the beginning. He really thought that night that the next day this was going to continue in other cities. Backing up what was in the FBI file from the informant that they went to these other cities on this crazy midnight ride around to cities, Fred makes the connection there. Yeah. So they they photograph him in in black and white and color because they want to show that they really hadn't beaten him and that he had no scars on his face and things like that. Um, And he's then given, you know, three glasses of water and he's cigarettes. uh, But he has this just almost very casual confession that he gives. There's every reason to really believe these notes that were taken because there's just enough quirkiness in them, like that whole thing about, you know, I, drinking wine in front of a white officer. Yeah. It's quirky. I yeah. mean, you, you can't make that stuff It's up. amazing as that document is, though, they, they can't quite make use of it? They can't make use of it because here's the mistake that happens. They, early on in the confession, they ask him, do you, do you want to have a lawyer? And remember that um, he had a lawyer, um, one of the figures in the book, Stanley Tolliver, who I actually met as a young lawyer here in Cleveland. Wow. Uh, But Stanley, very colorful guy and very well known in the legal community. Um, 
he had represented Fred when he attacked that policeman, Payne, Officer Payne, and then was tried. Stanley represented him. He's also the guy that represented um, Don Freeman, and he represented Lewis Robinson. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He was one of those guys who mm-hmm. repre- was very well known for representing people who, frankly, couldn't pay him any money, uh, and he did it. Um, but in any event, he, he asked him to call Stanley, and they in front of him, they actually called Tolliver at home, who's dead asleep. It's in the middle of the night. Mm-hmm. He puts the phone back down and falls right back asleep. Oh, good heavens. <laughs> so um, uh, he doesn't show up, and this interview then continues, and they should have stopped at that point and waited for Tolliver to come. And, of course, Tolliver would not have let him talk. He would have stopped it. Sure, um, sure. And so to the credit of the judge who tried this case, George McMonagle, a very revered judge here in town, he was in his 80s or 90s when I started practicing law. Um, and uh, he, he listened to all the evidence and made the right call that even though he had been read his Miranda rights, they had the right to remain silent. Once he asked for an attorney, they had to stop. And, and it continued. So this record that the police got then was suppressed and never came into evidence. They, they probably wanted to do it right if they were going to actually get a conviction and they knew they couldn't use it. So. Yeah. But this creates a real pickle for them, as we'll see, because um, uh, when we get into the trials and what happens there, um, they're going to have trouble coming up with evidence against Fred Evans. And they worry, uh, and, and the prosecutor worries, that he's going to lose the case against Evans. He actually, there's a quote in one of these FBI files that says the case against Fred Ahmed Evans is weak. Um, so we can get into that later. Yeah. But this is a really critical moment, and it's an incredible moment. It, it is quite quite a statement. Yeah. <laughs> quite a statement. I can't believe they, they couldn't even use it. Lou Garcia, let's bring Lou back into the story because that the sun comes up the next morning. Lou Garcia, who's an officer with Cleveland Police, wasn't at the scene of the shootout. He called in as soon as he heard what was going on, and they told him, stay there, come in on your regular shift 7 a.m. or whatever it was the next morning because we'll need you then. Lou comes in, and they ask him to interrogate or interview, question three men that were picked up in the scene. Yeah, on the scene. let's set this up and yeah. then listen to the clip. What happens is the the young men who are in the the nationalist apartment um, where this all starts on Auburndale were left there by Evans to protect, as he said, the women and the children. There were some young children in that house. Um, one of them was a guy uh, whose name is Leslie Jackson. He go, he went by Asu Bay, 16 years old. He's the one that had the stolen military rifle, the M2. Oh, right. And right. probably killed some people and probably wounded a number of them. In a sniper position in that in, tower? In, he was in that, no, he was in the house, okay. shooting out of the house. Mm-hmm. And according to what people who talked to him afterwards, he lived to like 2010. Mm-hmm. Um, he was going from window to window, making it seem like there were a lot more people in that house. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was just him and another guy named John Hardrick. Um, so Asube is 16 years old. Uh, Hardrick is about 17. And then there's another guy who seems to be mentally disturbed who they call unknown because he okay. was just a bizarre character, Alfred Thomas, who also had a gun, but he really he didn't appear to participate in much of anything. These guys all, as Pete Ventura and the other police, entered and started filling that home with uh, tear gas. Right. Um, they eventually escaped in the dead of the night. There was no lights. The police had shot out the lights to the apartment right next door. And they go into the basement of that house and then they go up and knock on the door of a guy named Matthews, whose family is just terrified by what's going on. Um, he lets them in, and they are standing there with their guns, and they want to get new clothes, and they want to hide their guns. And the guy says, you know, I mean, he didn't have any choice. What would you do? Yeah. 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 So he lets them in, and then the next morning the, the police are tipped off that there might be three of these guys in that house. They surround the house, and uh, the guy who interviews them and who helps – uh, get their 
story and their confessions is Lou Garcia. Here's Lou. So in turn, the officers immediately grabbed these three individuals, which we later found out to be a Leslie Jackson, who was 16 years old, a John Hardrick, who was 17 years old, and a uh, Alfred Thomas, who was 18 years old. And he said that they had come up there with guns and they hid the guns under the beds and they changed into his clothing. They got out of their dashikis and stuff and they put it into his clothing. In turn, they searched the individuals and in, both the, in two of the individuals' pockets, in Leslie Jackson's pocket, they found a 30 caliber cartridge and under the bed was a 30 caliber carbine. And in the pockets of uh, John Hardrick, they found a 3006, and under the bed was a 3006 Remington pump. In Alfred Thomas's pocket, they found nothing, but there was a third gun there, which was a 22 semi-automatic Marlin rifle. So they arrested those three, brought them downtown, and when they brought them downtown, like we were available, so Detective Rice and I went up to interrogate them. And Leslie Thomas was just, he told us the whole story. You know, John Hardrick wouldn't tell us anything. And as far as Alfred Thomas, he, he had some mental problems. He was a, a real hater of white people, a real. I, I don't think I ever in my whole life met anybody who showed so much hatred. Anyways, Leslie Jackson uh, basically told us the whole story. In fact, I think I made a five-page report on it. He told about Ahmed Evans bringing guns in and you know, did he shoot anybody? He said, well, he, he shot, but he doesn't know if he shot anybody or not. But I know for a fact that he shot a number of people. He shot a number of police. I like to use the word interview because people, a lot of way people interpret interrogation like you're grilling something. Yeah. This was a conversation yeah. like we're having now. They made no bones about it. Leslie Jackson talked like, I mean, I was 37 years old. He was 16. And we were almost like buddies. He's talking about this and we're taking, we're taking notes. So that's what I want to ask you. You knew at that point that several policemen were killed. Absolutely. And you knew that it was, they were killed by... Friends of these guys, right. or maybe these guys. Right. How did you not be consumed with rage that your fellow police officers were killed by these folks? At the moment, our thing was to gather information. I mean, we had to be cool and collected, and we were. We were. I, I mean, uh, I at this point, I didn't even know all the policemen who got shot, some of whom I knew quite well, quite well. Uh, one, the Lieutenant Jones, I knew very, very well. He got killed. I didn't even know he got killed at the time, so I wasn't really affected that much by it at the moment. I knew these were bad guys, and like they said, were, they were shooting at us, and we were shooting at them, you know. But the question was, you know, who, who fired the first shot? That's always been a question. There's no doubt in my mind that the first shot that was fired was that uh, 59 Ford Station Wag that fired at 962 who was trying to leave the area. And then the next shots that were fired were when Mac William McMillan, and then the next shots that were fired were People responding, McManaman and Sokolsky got, and then it went on from there. And you think uh, Ahmed Evans shot McMillan? Oh, there's no doubt in my mind. There's no doubt in my mind. Uh, not only had he been identified by McMillan as being the shooter, McMillan was shot four times with a shotgun. I can't positively say who shot him. I have my own ideas who shot him with the shotgun. The different people shot him because he was shot four times. There's no doubt in my mind he was shot twice with a carbine by Ahmed Evans. You switched them into just professional mode. That's you. You, you didn't have any anger. Uh, no, you no. You just went you, you into couldn't. this. The best thing you could do at that point would be to get the most information. Right, and I made a. I think I made a like a six-page report detailing everything, everything that they said. You everything. had a recorder in your briefcase. Unofficially. <laughs> You know, you, you really couldn't do this. I, I had a briefcase that if you, I built it, I put a little, a little three-inch reel-to-reel in it. It had a little button on it, and if you put the handle down, you had the thing, put the handle down, it would turn the recorder on. Somewhere amongst myself, I probably still have these tapes. Legally, you couldn't use them, and I mostly did it. I hated to write everything down. It's very awkward. I barely, barely used it for a purpose of notes. It never came out in trial. It never came out in anything. In fact, I'm surprised you even brought it up, but I don't care. 
you know, it was it was it a, was I recording him illegally? I guess technically I was. It was mostly to document. Right, what that's what it was said. for. This was important. I I under I understand. You know, when you, when you're sitting there with a pencil and you say, you know, hold that while you write something. This way here, we could just talk like we're talking now, and and the information just flowed. And it wasn't like, it wasn't like you got to tell us. It wasn't like that. It was just what happened. Well, I was there, and I did this, and I was showing us how to do, load the rifles, and you know, it was like no problem. What did they think they were accomplishing? <sighs> to to kill the beast, that's what they were. And the beast was white people, basically the police. And that was their terminology, to kill the beast. To kill the beast. And that's, I would refer to white people and policemen always as the beast. Many times, John Ungry, who, who talked to him many times before this happened, Ahmed would talk about blood flowing in the streets, about they having their own state, taking over the country, having their own state within the United States. Uh, they've been held down long enough, and now it's time for them to come out and kill the beast. It was not just mass murder, though. It was a revolution. Oh, a revolution, absolutely. In fact, I can, I can show you that during one of the witnesses during the trial, I, I actually have it written in my book, and that's what he said. He said, this is going to be a revolution. Those were his absolute words. So among the thousands of pages that still exist, Lou's notes from that interview still exist. They're right here, and it's worth hearing a little bit from those now. Yeah, this is important evidence because this is Lou Garcia speaking to the 16-year-old Asu Bay, um, and it is on July 26 at you know noon, around noon. So it's a couple days later. These guys have been brought in. Now remember, um, Leslie Jackson, Asu Bay, is a juvenile. So one of the big questions is whether he'd be tried as an adult or whether he should be turned over to ju- juvenile mm, court. Golly, yeah. Um, so at any rate, he does talk to him. And Lou takes down uh, information that's very consistent with Ahmed's confession. Um, he says, and this is Asu Bey saying what led to this. He says, I think it was on the 21st of July, Sandra Hardrick, Linda Hardrick, two of the women in, in the house, and me got an eviction notice uh, that was brought out to their place by someone. So this is this eviction causing the final straw, kind of. Um, and he says, the day of the notice, all the brothers sat down together, and they talked the thing over, and Ahmed Evans was there, and he said that, quote, he was tired of this, and we weren't, uh, we wasn't going any further. We gave up the shop, meaning his shop on right. Superior, right. Um, and we wasn't going to give this up. So this was like, you know, this is going to be our stand. Exactly. Um, and very consistent with all the other evidence about what we know about. He then goes on to talk about how they got their money from Huff Development Corporation, which is the Cleveland Now money. So he confirms that. And then he says, on the night of July 21, some brothers and Ahmed drove up to Detroit, Michigan. Um, and uh, Ahmed, and I think this actually happened on the 22nd, according to the FBI records. Okay. And therefore they came right. back on the morning of right. the 23rd. But right. at any rate, um, some brothers and Ahmed drove up to Detroit, Michigan. Ahmed was driving, and there were other brothers driving too. And then he shows that he was with them. He says, we went to the black nationalist headquarters there. So this is them setting up, you know, the multi-city rebellion. Um, we were going there to visit the brothers from Detroit. While we were there, Ahmed told the Detroit brothers about the eviction notice, and he told them about the grant of money that we had received from the Huff Development uh, Corporation. Ahmed told the brothers that he was not going to move out of the apartment. The the Detroit brothers told Ahmed that they were with him, whatever he did. Um, We drove back to Cleveland that same night and brought back some weapons with them and received some uh, pamphlets from Hanoi, North oh. North Vietnam, well. to just add to that that all. <laughs> Little element, right. And he said they stopped at Akron, which this is all consistent with this FBI informant it, who is calling the FBI as they're making as this, it's happening. As yeah, they're making really this trip. crazy. We still don't know, necessarily know who that is. Is that correct? Uh, we have, a, I have a feeling, but we officially don't. Yeah, you're exactly right. 
So he says, we got up the next morning about 9 o'clock. This was July 23rd. So you see he's, he's mixed the day. It's the mm-hmm. 22nd that they go. So now we're on the day of the shootout. And he said, I, I was there, and he said, um, at least six of the brothers were told to stay in the home to protect the pad and the sisters. Ahmed and the other brothers returned uh, with, with weapons, he says, and he said to them all, the police are outside. So this is the surveillance that really provoked them. Ahmed told the other brothers in the house to prepare in case the police came in and told them uh, and me and others to get ready uh, that they might be coming in. Um, And this is where he then witnesses Walter Beach and George Forbes showing up, talking very heatedly with Ahmed in the back. And he says about 15 minutes, half an hour later, I heard a lot of shooting. We laid on the floor and then it started at that point. So a very consistent information. The FBI informant who was calling the FBI, right. Fred's um, um, confession, and then this is Asu Bay confirming it. We have a pretty good idea about how this started and why it started. But there was a, a problem getting a conspiracy charge against Fred. Evans. Yeah. So a couple things. Number one, Fred Evans, Fred Ahmed Evans, became a bit of a uh, political martyr figure at that point. Um, a lot of black nationalists believe that he really didn't do this, that he was responding to police aggression, and he was seen as someone who was being persecuted. Um, now, we know that's not true, but nevertheless, people like H. Rap Brown, who had, by that point had become the head of SNCC, the mm-hmm. Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, they really started talking about him as a political prisoner. And around the country, that that whole theme came about. And they worried about what they called a legal lynching right. of, of Fred Evans. And there's posters that were done. There were ads taken out in the plain dealer and that sort of thing. Sababa still feels that way. Yeah. He still feels still. Yeah. So that's going on. And what's happening behind the scenes is they're going to now have to go to trial. And uh, Lathan Donald survived so that he could go to trial with Fred. But they decided to break him apart because they thought that Lathan Donald, who was only 19, might have some more sympathy and they wanted to go after Evans to start with. Okay. So his trial is scheduled for the spring of 69. And um, during that time, uh, the police are putting together everything. They go out and meet with the guys at the gun stores who had sold the weapons, and they get all of their receipts. And they're chilling receipts on the day, the 23rd, where Evans and another guy are buying all sorts of rifles and all sorts of ammunition. Armor-piercing ammunition. Armor-piercing bullets from Heckman Gun. This guy will come and testify, the guy who sold him all this stuff. And my question is, I'm reading this, how could you sell out all these guns and all this ammunition and not tell the police? Uh, Pick up the phone and say, (laughs) ah, just a thought. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Whoever it is, whoever's buying all these, you know, guns, black or white. Right. But again, this goes back to this whole gun debate in our country of, you know, Second Amendment and people have their rights and all that sort of stuff. Well, you know, we saw what happened back then. But in any event, they're gathering all this evidence, and one of the things they have to do is they realize very quickly that Evans didn't shoot and kill anybody. He was in that attic the whole time. And Turpin, the guy who owned the house, was going to confirm that he came up to that attic almost you know, within 15, 20 minutes of the whole thing starting. So he didn't shoot Galanka, who was behind 13 across the street. He wasn't there. He wasn't in the house when Leroy Jones was killed or when um, the first guy, Willard Wolf, was killed. He might have shot the tow truck driver? He probably did shoot the tow truck driver, but that guy survived. Right. So the problem is they want to they want to get him for murder, but he didn't murder anybody directly. So right. how, do you, how do you do right. it? Conspiracy. Okay. So the charge—and by the way, they wanted to drop all the other charges— like, you know, having weapons when he shouldn't have had them. They wanted to just get it down to this conspiracy to commit murder of these three murders so that they could get the death penalty. Uh, and the other charges, a, a jury could cop out and say, well, maybe they don't have the evidence that he killed anybody, but he did these other things, so we'll find him guilty of that. And that, you know, they just didn't want that. So for a conspiracy, you need a witness? Well, for a conspiracy, you need some evidence. It could be a witness. It could be other evidence um, you know, circumstantial type evidence. But mainly you need a witness. And so they needed somebody to come in and say, yeah, 
he was a part of this. He's the guy that stoked us up. He's the guy that went out into the neighborhood with the gun. He was a part of the whole thing, and he was the instigator of the whole thing. Their problem is that the kids who had been arrested in the apartment next door, Asube, et cetera, were juveniles, and furthermore, they weren't going to talk and uh, you know go against Evans, nor was anybody else. You can think back and consider that there was a huge fear of retribution if you testified against Fred Evans. Um, it was a big problem. So they couldn't find anybody to testify against Evans um, for this conspiracy charge. So it's worth us reading a little bit from this is one of the uncovered FBI files. Nice. Uh, to read from that about where the prosecutors were and what happened. So, all right. All right. So let me set this up for you, Chris. Um, and these, by the way, you and I both went to the National Archives so you could actually see some of these FBI files yourself and confirm uh, what we did. Um, so um, this, we're now going to reveal one of these files. The setting is this, that the trial had for Ahmed Evans is about to start within a couple weeks. Um, this is in March of 1969. So it gives you an idea how quickly things move in the criminal justice system. I mean, you're going to trial very quickly. And um, what happens is one of, the, one of the guys who's the main prosecutor, a guy named Charlie Laurie, uh, is concerned, and he comes to the FBI to tell them why he is concerned. And um, so this all sets up... Um, and is in, contained in a uh, an FBI document. Maybe you can take it from there and sure. describe the document. It's now a, a currently declassified FBI air tell from March 28, 1969, to the director of the FBI from uh, the field office in Cleveland. Yeah, SAC means special <clears throat> agent in charge of the Cleveland office. Uh, Re Fred Ahmed Evans, near the bottom of the first page, it mentions that at the outset of the meeting, Detective Smith stated that on the morning of 3-21-69, the Chief of Police, Patrick Garrity, had met with Assistant Cuyahoga County Prosecutor Charles Laurie, Sergeant Ungvary, and himself. The prosecutor pointed out that the case against Fred Ahmed Evans was weak, and that unless they came up with a witness who could establish a conspiracy to commit murder on the part of Evans, there was a good chance he will walk away from the trial as a free man. Prosecutor Laurie also stated that he was aware of the existence of an informant who could testify to the existence of a conspiracy. Prosecutor Laurie added that the testimony of the informant at this time had become essential to the successful prosecution of Evans. Detective Smith stated that he declined to furnish the name of the informant at this meeting. Smith further pointed out that from subsequent comments at the meeting by the chief of police and the assistant prosecutor, it became clear to him that pressure will be brought to bear upon him to reveal the name of the informant to the prosecutors. Detective Smith stated vehemently that he will not, under any circumstances, reveal the identity of the informant, even if it means that he will be fired or sentenced to jail for contempt. Yeah, now, you don't get much more drama. This is a memo to J. Edgar Hoover, this is a huge concern that Fred Ahmed Evans is going to walk, that they can't get anybody and uh, to testify against him. And here you have this setup where you have the prosecutor coming to the FBI saying, we need to use your informant. And, and the FBI knows what that means. It's a death sentence for the informant. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So Detective Smith, who's referenced there, is part of the Cleveland Subversives Unit. He's an African-American guy. He's the guy that... The informants met with regularly. Who, you know, he he was in, he was able to go into the neighborhood and right. meet with people. Right. Whereas it would have been more suspicious with a white uh, policeman, sure. glowing, walking around. Yeah. So uh, he's just saying no way. You know. So we've got this big Titanic battle between you know the FBI and the prosecutor whose case is about to start, and he's in trouble. Plus, they know it from the confession from Fred Ahmed Evans. What happened in the confession they can't use? Oh, the, yeah. The, the whole, the whole I setup. Can't imagine. So what happens is the, um, I think this makes its way to J. Edgar Hoover, and I think Hoover actually calls the chief of police here in Cleveland because they go back to the informant and they say, you're being asked to do this. And the informant, and they say, they say to the informant, we're not going to give up your name because we made you a promise. And furthermore, we think it will be your death sentence. I mean, they literally say that to him. And this informant 
takes that into consideration, leaves. He later uh, unbelievably calls him back and says, I'll testify. <laughs> wow. Um, because he, he really thinks it's important, et cetera. Um, that didn't happen. So what happened was the informant's identity remained anonymous. They were able to back away from this pressure because uh, Sergeant Smith and others go out to the Cleveland workhouse, which I think the structure still exists. It's out in Warrensville Heights, um, and it's this huge workhouse that people were sent to uh, in the in the county. They go out there and they find two young black men who have been arrested, nothing to do with this uprising, but for the murder of somebody some weeks later hmm. in some other unrelated incident. One of them was a guy um, whose name was Washington, who was literally um, facing severe problems because the murder weapon, the, the knife that had killed this older, older man, um, was found in his house and you know that sort of thing. So they get this guy, Washington, and one other guy, and they then bring them to trial, and they both get on the stand to testify against Fred Ahmed Evans. Without any connection to the Afro set or any it's, of the gangs? You know, my conclusion, based on everything that I've read and based on their testimony, was that um, Washington gets up and says, I went to the pad that day. I was a black nationalist. Um, he said he was part of the Black Panther, the nascent okay. Black Panther Party, uh, and that a bunch, 40 of them went to this place and that Evans was showing them how to use weapons and this all was about to kick off and all of that stuff. And he said, you know, that they were going to start the revolution that day. Um, none of that comports with what we know from the FBI, that there was he wasn't even back in town at that point. Oh, boy. Um, so he goes in and says that in... He is cross-examined because he's been given a deal that all the charges against him are going to be dropped. Uh, he's going to be put in the Army the next day, sent off away from Cleveland. Um, in fact, that is what happens. He, you know, Everything gets dropped. So his testimony is highly suspect. Um, the other guy gets up, and he folds. He will not say anything other than Evans was talking about black history. So in front of, Evan, of, of Evans being right there in the courtroom with him, uh, this guy, you know, kind of folds, and prosecutors get him off the stand almost instantly mm. when it's clear he's not going to uh, cooperate, cooperate yeah. at that point. Wow. He, too, though, by the way, goes to the Army the next day, sent away, and charges against him are dropped. That's a, a curious a sentence instead of jail or prison time and go right. to the military. Right, Of course, the irony of all this is we know from all the evidence what was happening. We know from the confessions. We know from the buying of the weapons. We know of the the planning to kick off this shooting on the 24th that Evans had instigated this and that he was guilty of conspiracy to murder. Uh, But the evidence was manufactured. And um, this, of course, is widely circulated among the people who thought he had been legally lynched. Legally lynching, yeah. The other thing that's important to know about this is it took a long time to seat a jury for the Evans trial. This was notorious. And most people were scared to death to be on that jury. The judge had to almost hold people in contempt to make them serve. And, of course, the way the rules worked... Uh, you ended up with no African-Americans on that jury. It was an entirely white jury that convicts Fred Ahmed Evans and very quickly, and then he is sentenced to death. Um, so he's supposed to die in the electric chair in August or September. This trial takes place in April, May time period. Oh, wow, that's swift. So he, he was sentenced to die. And um, a couple months later, while he's in prison, Lathan Donald goes to trial. Well, neither one of those witnesses, Washington or the other guy, show up. Um, Lathan Donald oddly takes the stand and testifies himself, and his testimony is not believable. He said he was, you know, sick that day and that he had taken heroin and that he had taken a bath, and then he went to the store to get some cold medicine, and by the time he came back, the shooting was in full gear, and his brother Bernard was in the backyard having been killed, so he took the bandolier off him and his rifle because 
he was being shot at and this was all self-defense. Mm. And that's not true. I mean, he literally was part of the group that came out and fanned out into the neighborhood. He got shot himself seven times but survived. Mm. Uh, there are photos, I think, of him in the hospital. Yes, uh, yes, yes. Yeah. And so he testifies. Uh, these other guys don't have to come in because um, they connect his weapon that was found on him to Galanka's murder um, in, in that backyard. And um, Fred Ahmed Evans, of all things, I don't know what they were thinking, uh, came from prison to testify. Now, he had not testified in his own trial. Really? Yeah. And he came and he waves all of his rights about self-incrimination. And it is very illuminating testimony, very bizarre testimony. Um, And he takes it all the way up to the shooting started where he then refuses to answer questions about what he did. Um, So it's like... This really is not helping uh, Latham Donald with this jury. No, no, not um, at all. In fact, he comes into the front with the, in his prison garb, you know, and but sunglasses. And it, it, the whole thing starts off with the prosecutor asking him to remove his sunglasses. You know, I mean, it just is. Mm. The whole thing is is quite a scene. And outside the outside of the trials, there are black nationalists gathered for each of these trials who are with the black nationalist flags protesting the, you know, the raised fists and that sort of thing. And um, it's quite, uh, quite a scene here in Cleveland, Ohio. Wow. That is, that really is incredible. Well, did uh, Fred Ahmed Evans sit in an electric chair? Were there appeals? There was, uh, no, to the answer to the question, um, there was, um, at the time, a case that was headed to the Supreme Court that um, ended up undoing all of the death penalties because it had been disproportionately applied to, to black Americans. And so hit, uh, of all the quirks, uh, he was c- very close to being electrocuted. He filed an appeal. And while that appeal was pending, this Supreme Court case comes down. So his death sentence is transformed into a um, life in prison sentence. Ah. Um, and he ends up 10 years later in 1979 dying of cancer in in jail. And uh, so that's what happens to him. Lathan Donald gets multiple life sentences. Um, and somehow, through a lot of uh, working with various people, ends up getting out of jail 20 or 25 years after he goes oh. into jail. Um, and marries his high school sweetheart. Uh, one of the women that I talked to in, in writing my book, who's now a Rutgers professor. Um, but she told me the whole story of him describing being in that backyard that night and that one policeman had literally a gun in his mouth about to kill him when somebody came around the corner, a uh, photographer, and that was the only thing that saved his life. He also said that because he had shot up heroin before going out into the battle, that that slowed his system down and he didn't bleed to death. That's what he claimed. Oh, that's his story. Yeah, it happened. He ends up dying of cancer in 2010 or something like that. So, unfortunately, did not get to meet him. Asu Bey also uh, and John Hardrick are tried and convicted as juveniles, found delinquent, and they're out of jail within a year or two, um, you know, once they turn 18. Um, so they were out on, on the streets and... Um, uh, both of them died of cancer um, oh. within the last few years. So oh. um, all these guys are gone, but uh, but certainly this this legacy of what happened during the time remains with Cleveland. But um, the the drama of those trials is hard to for people to imagine what it was like here in Cleveland, the division that it caused, and truly kind of the end of Carl Stokes politically. You know. Once it became clear Cleveland now funds were used, he won re-election but never ran again, and, and his career was really over, and he was fighting with police and with the white power structure from that point forward. Remarkably, we have all these records from these trials uh, because of Lou Garcia, who was involved from the Cleveland Police Department side of gathering all this information from the day after, from doing these interviews all the way through the trials, uh, they were going to destroy all these documents, photographs, everything. A lot of things that were used to write the book, to tell our story on TV, would have been, I think, lost to the ages had someone not contacted Lou and said, 
do you want to hold on to this stuff? Including the rifles that they confiscated right. at the scene. And there, people can see them. There's been a new exhibit created at the Cleveland Police Museum to uh, this whole incident. Those rifles are, are all there. So worth going to that it's, museum. It's, they have a really nice, nice setup here in Cleveland right. at the Police Museum. Right. So I think that kind of wraps our episode here. Um, I, what we want to do now is, in our last episode, we want to talk about the political outcome of all this, what it all means for us, and kind of a bigger picture look at not only Cleveland but the nation and uh, get into things like Black Lives Matter and and so forth. 50 years later, problems we still have in Cleveland and across America. Right. So I think we'll wrap it here, but um, stay tuned for the next segment, which is going to be our look at the political uh, fallout from all of this. See you next week. Ballots and Bullets podcast is a WKYC production. Our editors are Raquel Hagman and Rob Gardner. Interviews were recorded in Cleveland by Mike Leonard and in Tampa by Angela Clooney. Musical selections in this episode include our introduction song, What's Going On? Rhythm and Strings Mix by Marvin Gaye, Spaced Cowboy by Sly and the Family Stone, Revolution One by The Beatles, Many Rivers to Cross by Jimmy Cliff, And we concluded with a live version of Can't Find My Way Home featuring Steve Winwood and Eric Clapton. Be sure to pick up a copy of Jim Robinault's book, Ballots and Bullets, Black Power Politics and Urban Guerrilla Warfare in 1968, Cleveland.